Tanya chapter 10. So thank God we're here for a couple of weeks now. And uh, the first nine chapters of the Tanya have really set an elaborate stage. We've talked a lot about the makeup of a Jew. Every Jew has two souls. He has a godly driving force and an animalistic driving force, one that's pulling him up and one that's pulling him down. And without getting into all the details of the makeup and the character and the form of these souls, which we've discussed in previous chapters, last week, everything came to a head. In chapter 9, we learned about the struggle and the battle between the souls. And what we learned critically was that it's a battle for unconditional surrender. There's no 50-50%. There's no sharing. One is the victor or the other is the victor. Either the godly soul rules the entire city, the person's body, or the animal soul is in charge. But they use different weapons to get to their end. The godly soul is all about education. He wants to teach. He wants to enroll the animal soul into living a life that's completely attuned to divinity and the truth of reality. And the animal soul is power, passion, impulsiveness, emotion. These are its tools that it wants to just overtake the person, bring him down to the level of animalism and thereby control the entire being of the person. The Tanya is called the book of the Benonim, the book of the in-betweeners, the average man. We haven't done a lot of talking about the people of the Tanya yet. We've just been doing a lot of background information, building up the essence of the Jew, every Jew, no matter which level you're going to fall into. But now that we have the stage set, we're ready to explore the people. And the people are three. The Tanya is going to focus in on three types of people. Tzaddik, Russia, Benoni. Superman, weak man, possible man. Or as I like to say it, the Tzaddik won the battle, the Russia lost the battle, the Benoni lives the battle. He never loses, but he never wins. He never loses. It's key. This is, the, this is the entire thrust of the Tanya versus contemporary Jewish thought. Until the Tanya was written, measurement of these three characters, Tzadik, Benoni, Russia, was action-oriented. You did majority good deeds, you're a Tzadik. You did majority bad deeds, you're a Russia. You lived 50-50, you're a Benoni, you're a middleman. The Alter Rebbe, based on the Zohar, so it's a mystical definition, understands that Tzadik Benoni Russia is not about how many good deeds you have, it's a character thing, it's who you are, it's the life you lead, it's the way you live. Because everybody, and this was the point of the first eight chapters, everybody has the two souls. Everybody has the, the two equally fighting, equally powerful forces. The question is, what choices do you make? 
And the Tanya is going to be about the Benani, primarily. The possible man, the average man, the ordinary man, because that's the men we can be. We can each have the potential to be a Benani. But first, before we get there, we're going to spend chapter 10. That's tonight's chapter talking about the Tzaddik. Chapter 11, next week, talking about the Russia. So we get the two extremes, and then we get to the point, if you will, to the Benoni. And I, I want to make an observation that uh, I haven't heard from anybody, so this is usually what I teach here is what I learned from my teachers who taught me the Tanya and, and their great wisdom. But uh, there's an original thought that I, that I wanted to share tonight. Context is everything. In life, context is everything. From the simplest things, if it's words, tell somebody I love you. But the context you carry is a context of annoyance. You read right through it and it's, it's phony. You see it right away. That's words. Actions are the same thing. You do something good, but it carries the context. There's an aura of drained, you're not interested. The context comes across. And it's the same thing when you set something up in a book, in a presentation. The framework from within which you operate is the core basis of everything. And so looking at the Tanya, something that comes to my mind is that the Tanya is called the book of the Benoni. Why does it take 12 chapters to get to the point? I'm trying to be the possible man. I'm trying to be the ordinary guy. Let's get to it already. You know, I'm opening the Tanya's books. I'm flipping the pages. I'm spending one week, two weeks. We're here for what, 11, 12 weeks already. We haven't even touched. We haven't even touched the Benoni yet. Last week, we spent the whole chapter just identifying the struggle. No solutions. We walked away last week just aware of how we struggle. We didn't have any techniques to conquer the bad impulses. We never walked away with any good advice on what to do the next time the battle comes. It was just the struggle. This week, we're not even going to be talking about something practical for us. We're going to be examining the tzaddik's life, the ultimate super Jew. Next week, we're going to be talking about the lowest depths, the wicked man, the weak man. He gives in all the time. And I believe that... uh, the Alter Rebbe is trying to communicate something to us here. You know the people that whenever they get into an issue, they just want the solution now? You guys go into therapy, the therapist is bringing up the issues. Okay, what do I do? Let's go. Give me the thing. What should I do? Huh? It's like all of us. Like, yeah, I mean, no. And it, this, is, this, is, yeah, this is human experience. <clears throat> We're, we, we all want the solution right away. It's not wise. Because it means you're not being reflective. Anybody who just wants to know, okay, what do I do next? Tell me what to do. Now what should I do? There's no wisdom. You're not getting the lessons. Do this, do that, do the next thing. You'll be back tomorrow. What should I do tomorrow? You'll be back the next day. You never take it in. You never let it absorb and percolate and sit. And although the Alter Rebbe says in the introduction to the Tanya that the Tanya is a book of answers to all questions in the service of God, 
My personal belief is that he set it up this way because he wants us to be reflective learners. You know, the Tanya is not a soundbite thing. You open it up, all right, there's going to be 278 problems, 278 answers. Problem number one, I wake up in the morning and I'm lazy. What should I do? Okay, do this. <laughs> Problem number two, my wife says this and I'm spinning out. What should I do? This. My kid does this. It's, yeah, it's not a, you know, if the, yeah, it's not an if-then program. We dive in to a learning experience. And one week we'll talk about the soul. The good soul, the animal soul. The challenges. One week we just talk about struggle. And we walk home sitting in that. We walk home just introspective about the challenges that we face. Then we spend a week talking about the perfect man that none of us can be. Why? It's humbling. It allows for reflection. It allows for, the diff- for thinking about the different ways that life could play out. You know, Hashem created the universe with a potential that a person could achieve this level. Wow, that's fascinating. It helps put your own life in perspective versus just, you know, a guy who asks for solutions, I wouldn't just say he's not wise. He's almost selfish. He doesn't allow for the room of, of development of ideas and taking things in in the proper ways. So it, it, it's humbling. It's humbling when, you, when a guy comes and says, look, I want to solve my issues. Okay, we're going to go through 12 weeks of uh, soul therapy. Okay? What? When is it gonna, what's going to happen in these 12 weeks? Listen, three months from now, We'll get to your chapter, okay? <laughs> Three months from now, we'll get to the Bainanese chapter. Now we're just going to talk about the ideals and where it is that we could be. That's, there's, uh, there's incredible maturity there. It's humbling to go through that experience, but it's also empowering. It's empowering when you realize the context that's taking place around the Jew's life. Otherwise, it gets nitty-gritty. You're always in the struggle. Let's take a moment to reflect to look out, get a wider perspective. That's what we're doing in these past 10 chapters. And that's what we're going to do tonight as well. And next week, continue this evolvement of just knowing the truths, getting in touch with the real deal. And uh, it'll help us that when we land into chapter 12 and on, when we actually deal with what it is that we deal with as the Benonis, we'll be able to embrace it that much more in a real way. And so that's, that's my introduction for, uh, for diving into chapter 10. So, thank you. Look, it's, it's, uh, it, it came to me today. Well, true. So what is the tzaddik? That's tonight's topic. The tzaddik, the righteous man, the superman. I'm going to use one word that I heard from a teacher of mine. When he taught us this chapter, he said, in one word, a tzaddik is inspired. He's the inspired Jew. Inspired by God, inspired by Torah, inspired by mitzvahs, but the key is, his inspiration is consistent. It's always there. So, it's not moody, it's not momentary, it's not temporary, you know, we all get inspired sometimes. There's no question about it. We all look at our lives and we have those moments 
when we're feeling the truth. But then uh, it slips away, it fades, we lose it, right? So to understand the tzaddik, just think of a guy who is consistently inspired. Just cons- that, that's there he is, and the reason is because he actually won the battle. The battle, remember, is the two voices. The godly soul wants you to soar upwards. The animal soul wants you to go down. The animal soul is not evil. Remember that. This is a big thing we've come across in the Tanya. Animal soul is not bad. He's just animal. He's simplistic. He he can't, he's not visionary. He can't see things in a, in a in a wider lens. So he just says, "Live your impulsive life. You want to do this, do it. You want you crave this, give in. You lust that, do that." That's not a bad person. He's not saying go kill people. He's just saying whatever comes to you. Whatever. But I thought we discussed that a tzaddik doesn't have a choice. He's born that way. It's his innate nature. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, I want to... I, I want No, no, it's tonight, but I, I, I want to address it. Yeah, but for now, we're going to... This is the, the... The struggle is the up and the down. And the tzaddik... In a way... And I, I'm going to unpack it because exactly what you said now. In a way, he doesn't have a second voice. He's quieted the animal soul, either completely or at least to a sufficient degree, and we'll talk about this in a minute. But the animal soul has been quieted. It doesn't have an opinion. So the, the word struggle doesn't exist in his vocabulary. It's not, there's no, we're, we live with a perpetual struggle. It's constantly being pulled this way and that way. Struggle means there's two voices, there's two options, there's two perspectives. The tzaddik, he doesn't have that. So you know, it's like turning on the heater and uh, there's nothing to stop it. The propane is constantly being filled. So once you turn up the flame, there's nothing for it to go down. There's no wind blowing. There's no opposition. There's no adversity. There's no other challenges. Nothing. The barbecue is turned on. The passion is there. He's lit up and he just stays that way. You know, the... the uh, The, the, the illustration today we don't know this but maybe you're reading the news in Texas so maybe we could relate a little bit to the ice the, the, the freezing weather but uh, they, they used to give to understand that tzaddik was the difference between the rich man and the poor man when it came to firewood so the rich man is the guy who uh, he has a storehouse full for the winter he doesn't lack for any firewood he knows that any time he needs to pull out another block it's going to be there and it can just light the fire as a constant, beautiful source of heat. And so he never worries that he has to deal with extremes. You know, I got to predict the weather. Is it going to be colder tonight, hotter tonight? What should I expect? He's got so much in the, in the bank that uh, there's not, never a reason to worry. Versus the poor man, everything is a struggle Every piece of wood that he gets his hands on is a possibility to be used. So in the morning, he puts in all the firewood he's got just in case. Let's get the fire going really well. So when I come home tonight, it'll be hot and I'll have the thing. And he's always, he's always dealing with highs and lows, extremism, back and forth. The rich man, he's, he's, he's living a consistent life in that way because the firewood's always there. There's no, nothing's going to challenge that. So in that way, the tzaddik's fire is always on and he's never worried that it'll go out, that there'll be a too tough of a wind, maybe the window will break, or who knows what. No, he's, he's, just, he's just at that point where he's there. 
never has to never has to worry about running out of fuel. So this is the tzaddik, constantly, constantly inspired. And I, I want to give another example, not for this exact point, but another way to help see where the tzaddik is at. You know, many of us go to Shulan Yom Kippur. All of us go to Shulan Yom Kippur. Typically, there's a break in the afternoon between uh, you know the morning, the Musaf service, and then till the Mincha service. There's always like a couple hours break. And you'll see sometimes people will stay in shul. It's not too tough to walk back and forth. They'll stay in shul. They'll take a nap. <coughs> and you always... Huh? Well, Yom Kippur, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but the, you, you'll, it was a joke. Guys, it was a joke. Was a, but uh, you'll, you'll always hear the guys. One guy says to the other, listen, I'm going to sleep. Wake me up for, for Mincha. Just make sure I'm up for the... On the regular Tuesday, you never hear a guy go, listen, I'm going to sleep. Wake me up when I get hungry. Wake me up when I have to eat. Why? How come for mincha we need to be woken up and for the food we don't? It's very simple because when we're hungry, our body will send us the reminders. We'll start feeling it. Our stomach will send the messages. Our brain will start processing. Hey, you got to eat. You haven't eaten for a while. But somehow for the mincha, we don't get those reminders. So if we're not woken up, we'll sleep through it. But Sadiq's the inverse. Mincha sends him voices. This is what he, he can't miss it. Understand? That's what he's in tune with. He's the guy who needs to be woken up for lunch because he's quieted that area of his character. And that's saying, look, let me go to sleep. If I get hungry, just let me know, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll feed it. In chapter 29, we'll come across this again, where the great sage Hillel, he, he used to learn Torah all day, and then he would tell his students, he's like, look, uh, listen up, I, I, I got to go feed my poor man. And by my poor man, he meant his body. He, he treated it almost like a separate entity. This was like, a, he's got to go feed the poor man. Versus, versus his own, his own personality, this was where he was at. So, it's, it's, constant, it's constant feelings to Hashem. It's feelings to Hashem and no alternative feelings. I, I don't know how to communicate it. Like, just try to visualize it. Just close your eyes and think about a life, not, not a moment of passion, a life of passion. I, I, I don't know if it's possible to even like, describe it. Instead, this is like, a, it's a lifetime thing. It's not a wake up in the morning, put on tefillin, now I'm feeling great, take it off, now I'm going to eat. This is, this is his entire life. It's an inspired life. It's an inspired life. It's not an inspired gathering. It's not an inspired holiday. It's an inspired life. Now, the Tanya doesn't use the words inspiration. This is not... Um, in Hebrew, those aren't the words that the Alter Rebbe uses. He doesn't use the words passion or inspiration. These are English words to help us understand it. The metaphor in the Tanya is love. Ahava. A tzaddik has complete level of Ahava Tashem. And we can also use that to help us understand. We, we, we're never constantly in love. We fall in love. We fall out of love. We fall in love with other things. Love is it's fluctuating for us. Transitory. The tzaddik is engaged in a love with Hashem that's constant. 
So I use the word inspiration to help you, to help us see it. But the Tanya's words are actually love. Tzaddik won. He won the battle. How did he win? It's not spoken about too much in the Tanya, but in the context of what we talked about last week, we can understand it. The godly soul's method is education. The godly soul seeks to teach the animal soul the value and the, the purity and the beauty of living the spiritual life. And what that basically means is that the tzaddik has succeeded at that. He spent enough time meditating, reflecting, being mindful of the truths of reality, and he's really come in touch with it. We've talked about uh, previously that klipa, the shell that covers over and suppresses the truth of divinity and every single thing in the world is the reason why we make mistakes. Klipa is that power that is the reason why we give in and why we lose. But even as we talk about it, we call it klipa. We call it the outer shell. We call it the husk. In other words, we acknowledge that it's not the truth. So the tzaddik has come into contact with the truth of reality, and so perversion of reality isn't tempting. See, for us, this is the reality. And we have to talk about how the truth is that Hashem is the truth of everything. Tzaddik says, no, that's, that's the obvious reality. The obvious reality is that of God and what you want to tempt me with. You're like, hey, take some pizza. Hey, take some vacation. Hey, take some time off. Hey, relax, buddy. Hey, go to the beach. Hey, take a hike. It's, it's not tempting. People are... are uh, you know, they sometimes think that the tzaddik is you know, self-suppressing, too much discipline, he's being too hard on himself. It's a different context. He, he's, not even, he's not even trying. It, 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 this is just his life. He's come to that where what you're offering me is not a thing. Suppressing is no good. I don't, I don't, you know, don't want to go there. That's psychological issues. Suppression and holding down and... He, you know, he, yeah, he, he's not, he's in a space where these things don't turn him on. Uh, we, we can each label these things, okay? We, we, we have moments in our life where uh, we, can, we can remember that we were just in a higher plane. And if in that moment you would have offered me a burger, I would have been, no, like, what are you doing? You're not, you're not hopping me now. Now, Wednesday night, give me a burger. Absolutely, I'm in. No problem. Right? <laughs> but there are moments, if it's an extreme moment of happiness or an extreme moment of sadness, typically in mourning, these are the times when, don't bring me this. It's not, it doesn't match. So in that moment, what, he's suppressing his, his will to burgers? No, he's just in the space where it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't reach his heart. So think of the tzaddik in that way. He's, he's always there. He's always at that part where Hashem is the truth. Nothing else occupies any space in, in his court. Th- this is the positive side. The Alter Rebbe, to help us understand it, he also gives us the other side. He says that sometimes it's hard to gauge the level of a person's love or inspiration. Here's an easy tool, he says. Here's like a, I guess a, I guess a parallel. Another, another, the, the other side of looking at it where you'll be able to measure how much of the love he's engaged in. And what he calls this in Netanya is mo'es vera, loathing or hating evil. Now again, 
in the context of what we've been studying, we know that evil in the Tanya doesn't mean bad, literal evil. Evil means anything outside the realm of service of God. In the mystical yardstick, the bars are high. Evil doesn't have to be bad to be in the realm of Ra. It just has to not be holy. That's why the Zohar calls it the other side. Sitra Achra. Other side, because as soon as you're not on our side, you're on the other side. So the author Rebbe says, look at how much the tzaddik is averse to those distractions. The level to which he hates or loathes or is intolerant of the other side is the level to which he's engaged in the love of Hashem. Because it, it, it comes in tandem. Love to one element breeds intolerance to, uh, to the other element. Intolerance. Intolerance. Now, I, 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 sh- I should clarify that word. You know, it, it sounds like um, you almost become zealous or, or mean towards others. I, I, don't, I don't mean that. You know, there's a, there's a great line I once heard from somebody. He said, um, people that have tolerance of everything don't truly love anything. Now, people talk about tolerance all the time. Tolerant for everybody. Tolerant for everything. You've got to be tolerant for the whole wide world and everything in it. No, that's not wisdom. Tolerance for everything means love of nothing. Because if you truly were engaged in the love of something, you have to be intolerant to those that don't stand in the principles. Now, I don't mean mean and, and, and that whole disengaging type of a thing. But an intolerance in the sense of, it doesn't come to me. It doesn't reach me. By the way, those same people that'll, that'll lecture you about tolerance, there is one thing they don't, they don't have tolerance for, when you violate their ego. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Typically. There, they don't have tolerance anymore. Yeah. Right? right? Now that it's, relic, now that it's hitting, my, now it's hitting, like we say in Yiddish, my pupik, now that it's hitting your, your belly, oh, well, now it's a different thing. What happened to all the things about tolerance? Okay. Now, in other words, what it is, is you really love yourself. And you can't stand that somebody is violating you. That's fine. That's natural. But then you have to acknowledge that in the bigger picture. So if I love Hashem, it's hard for me to, to um, allow the other things to engage with me. Intolerance, I guess is what, if I want to say it better, is an inner thing. I don't mean intolerance that's expressed outwards in the sense of putting down and condescendingness. Intolerance means within myself. If I'm truly engaged, I'm truly locked in with my passion to Hashem, I can't be locked in with anything else. Nothing else will touch me. So the Alter Rebbe says, measure, he's talking to the tzaddik, obviously this is not, I don't even know if we can even, yeah, we, we have metaphors, but he's telling you, he says, gauge your level of intolerance for distraction and you will know your level of love to Hashem. But the theme of any tzaddik though is that he has won the battle. He has quieted He has quieted the, um, the animal soul. So, if, if, you're, if, you, if we follow the, the lingo we're using until now, I want to address a point Sharon brought up before, and that is it seems like tzaddikim become a tzaddik. 
they work to quiet their animal soul. And it is the truth. There is a Hasidic saying that says, Tzadikim don't become Tzadikim, they're born Tzadikim. But what that means is not that they're born without an animal soul. It's an important clarification point to make. It's clear in the Tanya's language and for sure in later Hasidic texts. The ability to quiet your animal soul is a gift from God. The potential is a gift from God. But you still got to do the work. The tzaddik has to do the work. There's no question about it. And we, we know from the stories in the Talmud that there were some tzaddikim who did not reach their potential or reached it only later in life. Rabbi Akiva is an example of a tzaddik, but until 40 years old, he didn't know the Aleph base. He simply didn't know. Which means that his soul was invested with the gift from Hashem to be able, when he began the service of God, to, to, um, to quiet it. But he had to do the work. So when we say tzaddikim are born tzaddikim and they don't become it, what that means is we don't have the option to become a tzaddik. Let's say it that way. Okay, me and you, we don't have that option. We have the option to serve God or not to serve God. And that's the choice we have to make every single day. How do you know? I'm gonna, I'm gonna close tonight with that. The, the, the answer to that question, I, I, I will close with that. It's a good question. How, how a person knows whether he has the potential. But we don't. A tzaddik has the gift from Hashem to be able to become a tzaddik, but if he doesn't do the work, he won't reach it. It's true. Mm-hmm. So that's the general gist of what a tzaddik is. That's the, basically the first half of the chapter is just defining the general theme of tzaddik. He's the one who has won the battle. His animal soul is quiet, it doesn't tempt him, so there's no struggle, and he lives in the inspiration. But there are two categories of tzaddik. Two broad categories. Now the truth is, there's as many categories of tzaddik as there are tzaddiks. Just like there are as many categories of humans as there are humans. Every person is different in his own way. And the altar actually says that. He says, there, there are, in truth, there are myriads and millions of levels of tzaddikim. But we can sweep them into two general categories. And for the purposes of our discussion, tzaddikim that are still human and tzaddikim that may as well be angels. Angels. Perfect tzaddikim. We call them in the Talmud tzaddik gamur, tzaddik she'ino gamur. Total tzaddik, non-total tzaddik. What do I mean by that? So, the, the first level of tzaddik, what he shares with other human beings is that he still does struggle. I know I said before he doesn't struggle. He still does. Spoiler. Not in the way that we do though. And I want to clarify what that means. We struggle on a behavioral level. Well, we struggle first and foremost on an inner level too. That's perhaps the reason why we struggle on a behavior level. We're torn inside. We're torn with urges. Urges to good, urges to base and lustful things. Urges towards expending our energy, urges towards retaining our energy. We don't know where to give it. We, we, we struggle with being kind and generous and lazy and, and, and all these things. These are inner struggles, emotional inconsistencies that lead us to behavioral struggles. We give in sometimes, we don't give in. We act out, we don't act out. We control, no control. Discipline, no discipline. 
tzaddik doesn't struggle on the behavioral level. See, to us, the Alter Rebbe is going to say later in the Tanya, he's going to say, if you can keep your behavior consistent, forgive yourself for your inner turmoil. Hmm. Forgive yourself for your emotional lack of consistency. That's going to be the answer to us because our struggle primarily expresses itself in the outside. So if we can control that aspect, we can say, you know what? It's fine if inside we're always feeling the pull. That's fine. It's who we are. Let's make peace with it, accept it, but let's keep our outside behavior consistent. That's going to be our, and that's, that's a lifetime of work. I mean, please, it's not easy. The tzaddik has already mastered that. So he does have to deal with the inner subconscious inconsistency. There's no voice of the animal soul pulling him to any urges. Those have already been conquered. But there is, it's not in the Tanya's words, but in the words of other Hasidic discourses, it's the Yetzirah of who he is, not what he does. It's the inner subconscious element of his soul that hasn't been completely, completely, completely eradicated. And so in that sense, he struggles with dealing with that. I, 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 the words I'm using are cheap because don't even think that the tzaddik struggle compares with ours. It's not even a synonym. It's a completely different realm. But just to give the idea, I want to use that word. He, he struggles with clearing out completely any level of something that might be construed as not completely devo- devoted to God. And I, I want to give some examples so it becomes a little more crystallized. Where could a tzaddik struggle express itself? Again, these are not all in the Tanya. I'm just borrowing from other sources so we can, we can get a clarity. You know, we talked before about uh, love and intolerance ratio. It's not a willful misbehavior. We don't talk about a tzaddik's intolerance like we would talk about our intolerance. But it could very well be a fact. If any of you have ever been in the presence of greatness, just somebody completely beyond anything you could have ever aspired to be. It's a, it's a um, without even him wanting, it's a dwarfing experience. There's just something about it that could allow you to feel completely inadequate. He didn't do anything. He didn't, he didn't say anything. He didn't look at you the wrong way. You're just in the presence of majesty. So you feel small. And it could be at any level, a great scientist, a great player, a great, just greatness, what you consider greatness. And so for you, he's totally out of your league. And you, you meet him, you're like, and, and, and you lose yourself. Hasidus says, if a tzaddik conveys that feeling to somebody else, that's a subconscious level of evil for him. For him. If he was completely, completely in tune, even if he was the greatest of the great, nobody would feel small in his presence. Hmm. It's, it's, (laughs) I mean, 
to even struggle with that is like, where, you know, where are we at? But this is what it says. If ever his presence is so overpowering that he dwarfs somebody else, that's considered a level of evil that he has to deal with. Wow. Huh? What a standard, exactly. What a standard. I want to carry it even further. You know, as we study electricity and, and we gain more insight uh, into the workings of the electric current. So we, we talk about different conductors for electricity. And uh, we've come to, to identify conductors that are inefficient versus conductors that are efficient. And as we develop, we, 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 we say that if any conductor demonstrates any level of heat on the outside, that's already a certain level of inefficiency. Truly efficient electricity should flow in a way that you can't feel it on the outside. Zero friction. There should be zero. Right? If there's any level of heat, that means we're creating friction. Resistance. Huh? Resistance. Resistance. There you go. Thank you. I'm not... Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? And, so it, and, and that's why it gets hot. Right? That, that, that's where the heat comes from. Versus if it was completely flowing and there was nothing resisting, it would actually be cold in a way. You know, we, we mentioned last week the story of the, uh, the Hasidim of the Tzemach Tzedek. The third Rebbe, they asked him, what was Moshe Rabbeinu doing at the time of the splitting of the sea? What was he doing? Yeah, was he praying? Was he dancing? Was he, was he singing? So the, the Tzemach Tzedek says he was hot ice. Cold as a statue on the inside, burning on the outside, burning with passion on the inside. But it was completely non-demonstrative. If the heat, <coughs> if the passion is visible, if the passion is visible, that's already a level of evil. So now we've gone even further. It's not only if I dwarf somebody else, if even my own service of Hashem gets shown on the outside to a level that means there's resistance, that means there's heat, that means there's outside elements, it's not completely at peace. Versus the complete tzaddik has zero friction. His passion is completely non-demonstrative, it's not visible. It's why the greatest tzaddikim davened in stillness. Whereas many great tzaddikim davened in passion and heat, and they were tzaddiks. They were. And they look even more righteous than the other ones, because these guys are dancing up and down. But in truth, the ones who are still and the most focused, those are the ones who are com- experiencing godliness completely. Huh? No shuckling. No, the Rebbe never moved in davening. Never. Try it. Try it. It's very hard. It's very hard. He's at the wrong show. It's very hard. 
Yeah, and by the way, you know, what do they say? That not because every not because every wise man is silent, does that mean that every silent man is wise? You know, please. Of course, we're not. I don't mean to say that if a guy stands still, he's a tzaddik, but I do mean to say. <laughs> but it's not, it's not that simple. Okay? No, look, we can try to develop it, but no, it's not. It's not. It's not that way. But when you're dealing in the world of a tzaddik, a, a good identifying key is to what level is he still? More stillness means more in touch, not less. The Alter Rebbe, again, using the metaphor of love in this chapter 10, he says there's the, the difference between the imperfect tzaddik and the perfect tzaddik is if his love is like fire or his love is like water. Fire is, is noisy. Emotional. It cackles. It, it's, um, it's loud. It's also a divider. It breaks things down. Water is, it, it, water is quiet. It water is... Calm. I know some water could be very noisy, but as a theme, water is calm, it's tranquil, it's, 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 it's still. And it's also a connector. It joins things together. And basically, the, the difference is, is the tzaddik still on a journey, or is he in the experience? So the imperfect tzaddik, when I say he struggles, what I mean is, on those levels of the subconscious, he wants to rid himself completely of any level of outsideness, that his being shouldn't dwarf others, that his own passion shouldn't be demonstrated. These are incredible, incredible levels because the perfect tzaddik is the opposite of that. The perfect tzaddik has completely swept out every level of his yetzahara on any level of his subconscious and therefore he's completely at peace. And evil is a non-issue. You know, there was a great story of um, Reb Nachum Chernobler great Hasidic master in the earlier times, student of the, student of the Magid, I believe. Or maybe even later. What was the name? Reb Nachum of Chernobyl. He was very fat. And uh, it says that he, he became fat from saying, Amen Yeheshmei Rabba. He didn't become fat from eating uh, donuts. It's, it's literally, the, the, the pleasure and the enjoyment of saying Amen to Akadish literally enhanced his flesh size. That's the level we're talking about. And so he was once invited as a guest to uh, a home. And uh, they were having a drink. And he needed some milk in the drink. So he was asking, where's the milk? And uh, the host said, what do you mean? The milk is on the table. He said, where? I don't see it. What do you mean? It's right here. He picks up the milk. And as they're talking... The milkman runs into the house and says, uh, don't drink the milk, don't drink the milk. The milk was uh, milked by a non-Jew and uh, it's not kosher. So Ibn Nachum of Chernobyl said, now I understand the mystical meaning of the Mishnah. The Mishnah says when defining the rules of kosher milk, what makes milk kosher is not uh, its ingredients. And of course nowadays with preservatives, you have to make sure those are kosher too, but Milk also becomes non-kosher in essence if it's milked without a Jew seeing the process. If a non-Jew milks the cow and there's no Jew watching, the milk is non-kosher. So the Mishnah describes it, it says, Chalav shechalavo goy ve'en Yisrael ro'ehu. Milk which a goy milked and a Jew wasn't watching. 
But if you translate the words literally, it says, milk that was milked by a non-Jew, a Jew doesn't see it. Ein Yisrael ro'eyu. If you know Hebrew, you can appreciate it. Chalav shechalavoy goy, ve'ein Yisrael ro'eyu. It's not describing the case. It's not like milk, which a non-Jew milked and the Jew didn't watch it. No, it's, it's, a, it's a fact. When milk is milked by a non-Jew, a Jew doesn't see it. He simply didn't see the milk. It didn't exist. See, if he was a lower level of tzaddik, he would have sensed, he would have seen it. It would have been an issue. And he would have said, I gotta, I, you know, I gotta turn, turn away from it. The ultimate level of tzaddik, there's no, there's no loudness. It just doesn't exist. Problems don't exist. Non-Jewish milk, I didn't see it. It just doesn't exist. I can't see it. Huh? Doesn't yeah, exist because he hasn't, he hasn't talk yeah it, it's it's possessed. I mean, it possessed exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 The perfect never, never deals with that. So that's the evil that the imperfect tzaddik has to deal with. It's completely not a behavioral struggle. It's that's not what we're dealing with. It's an inner thing, inner levels of evil, and that's what the tzaddik, the imperfect tzaddik, has to work on. It's why we, we, we read in history that there were many tzaddikim who would impose upon themselves incredible regimens of just complete self-abnegation. They would fast for days. The Talmud talks about sages who would fast until their teeth turned black. I mean, what were they doing tshuva for? Nonsense? What, what, what were they? These are tzaddiks. The answer is they were dealing with those inner evils and were, were eradicating it on a whole different level. Versus the perfect tzaddiks who never engaged in that because they were already fully clear. So that's the, uh, that's the, the parallel. You measure your level of love and engagement with Hashem by, your, the, by the way you act towards problems. Are they issues but you don't give in or they're non-issues? For the perfect tally, they, just don't, they, they don't exist. They're non-issues. And there's a complete stillness and a calmness. Uh, it doesn't, ma- doesn't, liter- doesn't mamish connect, but it's a good story anyways, which brings out one point. There was a, um, one of the early Chabad yeshivas where they taught the idea of... Uh, self-discipline, self-control, not giving in to temptations and delaying self-gratification, all the basic principles of Hasidus. So there was always very little food in the yeshiva. Besides the fact that it was just simply not, economically the situation wasn't good. There wasn't food in Russia. But uh, one day somebody had made a donation and there was this big um, piece of meat that came, that came to the yeshiva. Good juicy to feed a lot, of, a lot of people and when the young boys came out of the study hall for supper and they saw this they'd never seen it before they all jumped over it and they were getting it and, and getting excited about it and each one was taking a piece and enjoying it and to their luck that night one of the main supporters of the yeshiva decided to drop a visit he walks into the dining room and he sees this is this is the boys that I'm supporting Look at them, they, they fress, they were fressing the steak, jumping all over the meat. I thought we taught 
Hasidic values. I thought we taught refinement here. I thought we taught... It's like even me, and I'm not a big chassid. When I eat chicken at home, I have a knife and a fork. I eat it calmly. I don't gobble it up with manners and the whole thing. He was complaining to one of the older, the senior students. So the guy said, you know, you're missing something. Let me, let me help you see what you're missing. The difference is not in the attitude when the food is there. The difference is what would happen if the food wouldn't be there. Come back tomorrow night. There's going to be regular hard black bread and water for these boys to eat. What's going to be their reaction? They'll be just fine with it. They'll go back to their routine, no issues. I guarantee you, he said to the rich man, and I guess he gave him the truth where he had to hear it. Take away your chicken supper for one night. Let's see what happens. Let's see how calm and how well-mannered you'll be then. Sometimes being still with something actually shows where you're locked in. If you're too well-mannered about the chicken, that means this became your life. In a way, what he was saying. The reason why these young men jumped over the meat, because this was an exception. It got loud and noisy in the moment. But where do they revert back to? What's their default setting? in tune with Hashem and the proof is in the pudding bring back the hard black bread they don't mind at all but the spoiled indulgent pleasure engaging person who every night has to have the greatest of foods one night his waiter comes and says oh god sorry I I didn't make the food tonight what how could you whoa shows on something shows where you're at so stillness actually shows more complete engagement. And so the tzaddik, by being, the more still he is, the more quiet he is about his love to Hashem, that actually shows on more levels of perfection. Now, this level of being a perfect tzaddik, I mean, if being a tzaddik itself is a gift from God, being a perfect tzaddik is certainly a gift from God and is not in our capability. We, this is a matana, the Alter will say later in chapter 14, explicitly. They, may, they, they literally, outside their human bodies, they may as well be angels. Eliyahu Hanavi is an example of this, and, and Moshe Rabbeinu. Why do they exist? Why did Hashem bring their souls into bodies? So the Alter Rebbe addresses in the end of the chapter. He says, these tzaddikim exist for higher purpose. First, he says, they exist to influence the world. See, we live a life existentially fighting with ourselves, improving ourselves. How, how refined can we make our own being? And inevitably, we have an effect on the world. By becoming more refined, our environment gets more pleasurable to live with. We, 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 the world becomes more of an elevated place. This, the perfect tzaddik is here solely for the environment in that way. In other words, he expedites the process of making the world a better place because he himself is fully engaged with his own, um, his own being. Furthermore, and this is kind of a corollary, they exist, corollary, 
is they exist to uh, what he calls in Zohar language Every morning when we, before we say the, you know, in the beginning of the morning prayers we say what's called the L'Shem Yichud it's a, it's a Kabbalistic introduction that we say we're going to daven and everything we do today is in order to unite God and His divine presence many Sephardim say it before every mitzvah that they do before they shake lulav, they have a l'shem yichud. Before they eat matzah, they have a l'shem yichud. Before they put on tefillin, there's a separate l'shem yichud for every single thing. In the Arizal, the way it's brought down in the Chabad uh, liturgy, it's once a day. But the idea is importing Hashem in a more revealed way to this world. And so the perfect tzaddik, that's what he's fully occupied with. Again, we deal with the center being ourselves, and we have to refine ourselves, and then we hope that we bring in Hashem into the picture as well by what we do and the way we behave. The tzaddik is there, the complete tzaddik especially, fully there for that purpose. He accomplishes the most he can in that realm of bringing down Kuchabrichu Hashem and his uh, and his Shekhinah. So those are the two broad categories of the tzaddik that's discussed in the chapter. As a theme, the tzaddik is the one who won the battle, but to the level of how much of the subconscious evil he has covered is, makes him imperfect and perfect. And that's why there are myriads of tzaddikim levels because within the journey of the imperfect tzaddik, every imperfect tzaddik has his own thing. To what level did you conquer your subconscious? So just like every human is different, every tzaddik will be different. There's an interesting third type of a tzaddik that's not discussed in the chapter, but I want to just mention it briefly. And this is called the neshama klalit the general soul. It's believed according to the Arizal and the Zohar already that every generation has one tzaddik that is actually made up of the souls of the entire generation. He is the nasi, he's the leader of a generation. Because even the perfect tzaddik in the end lives within himself. The neshama klalis, the general soul, lives for the people. So he lives a paradox because in his own life he's reached complete perfection but yet the souls of others influence him. Moshe Rabbeinu said there are 600,000 people in my nation. And when he used the word people instead of saying the usual word for people in Hebrew he said ragli. Feet. There are 600,000 feet in this nation. Why did he call them feet? Because they're his feet. He was the general soul in the sense that he was dependent on them. And so the followers have an effect on the leader. They, they, they're a completely different category. They're a perfect tzaddik that now carries the, bur- the burden of the entire Jewish people on their shoulders. So if tzaddikim in general are incredibly rare, and perfect tzaddikim are even more rare, so the general soul is one in a generation. That's the Rebbe. The Rebbe is the, is the Neshama Klal, is the general soul of, of the generation. How does a tzaddik know that he's a tzaddik? Yes. Does he have to be a chosid? Just in case you guys wanted to know. <laughs> but it, 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 it's, it's a good closing thought, so I'll close with this. How does a tzaddik know that he's a tzaddik? So the answer is, they hear it from another tzaddik. Ah. There's actually a story with uh, the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Rebbe of Chabad, 
he had a chassid whose name was Reb David Tzvi Chaim. Radatz, he was called for short. Reish Dalit Sadek, Reb David Tzvi. And uh, he once came into a private audience with the Rebbe Maharash, and the Rebbe Maharash said, Said Reb David Tzvi, it's already time to begin to think about doing the service of a tzaddik. In other words, he communicated to him, you're ready. Coming from one tzaddik to the other, he was now letting him know, you've been working all your life, your soul has the potential to be a tzaddik, it's time to, uh, it's time to start working. So I want to end tonight with the guarantee yeah. that you're not ready. <laughs> and neither am I, okay? <laughs> In other words, this is not our life. It's not one of our options. But we do go home with it tonight knowing that it is a potential for a human being. So we've widened our perspective and now when we approach our own struggles, it'll be within that framework. So, the high end to that.